Good morning. Happy Canberra weekend. 110 years old. Apparently. Doesn't look that old. Well, look, um, I have a part of a Bible study group that meets on Friday night across at the rectory and the main idea of it is that people can drop their kids at the youth group and come across and then the kids have youth group and they can leave from there, etc. But others come as well. But we had a, there was a bit too much laughter, I thought, on Friday because um, right at the end of the Bible study group, I said, um, I'm going to preach from that on Sunday. We've been looking at Luke 16, that parable about the steward. They just laughed. They just thought this was a great rollicking joke that I was going to try and speak from a passage that we'd spent quite a bit of time trying to make sense of. Because it is, I think many scholars would say, it is probably the hardest of Jesus' parables to understand. One intelligent but silly German commentator in the first half of the 20th century said it's a meaningless story. Well, it just means he's just a dope, really. Um, But Daryl Bock, who's a very fine Christian man and an excellent scholar, he says it's the hardest parable of Jesus to understand. So if when you heard it read or perhaps read it with your life group, you went, this is a bit weird. That's okay. It is a bit weird. But, uh, you know, they say about uh, quantum mechanics, the sort of weird area of physics, that if when you heard it explained, you think you understand it, you haven't understood it. That the mark of understanding is that you go, what? That can't be right, can it? What do you mean a particle be in two places at one time? And other things. Well, I reckon this is a pretty straightforward parable. So I might be like the person who, you know, hears about quantum mechanics, thinks they get it, but really doesn't. Tell me afterwards. But let's pray anyhow that the Holy Spirit that Jesus sent uh, would help us understand what this parable of his is saying to us. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the gift of life and time together. Uh, We... Pray now that your spirit would help me to speak clearly, truthfully, uh, usefully, and that you'd be at work in our minds and in our hearts, that we would not only understand, but build what Jesus is saying here into our lives. We ask this through Jesus. Amen. So Luke 16. I was very sorely tempted to read the whole chapter because I think it, it does make sense even more with the whole chapter. But you can, that's what Sundays are for, aren't they? You can go home and read it at your leisure. I'm going to suggest three questions we're going to look at. Are you a steward or are you an owner? Am I a wasteful steward or a faithful steward? Will I be faithful or will I be shrewd? Firstly, are you a steward or an owner. Um, oh, look, it's up there on the screen. How helpful. Right. Um, this parable is about a steward. It, in, in some translations like this one, the, the word is translated manager. But steward is kind of helpful because we have managers at work who, who aren't really the same as a steward. Uh, let me read you what a steward is, a definition. Actually, where have you ever run into a steward? Some of you will have met people who, who are stewards. Where, where do you meet stewards nowadays still? I'm going deaf or you're mumbling. I'm not sure which it is. Today. I'm going deaf. <laughs> on a plane. You sometimes meet a steward. Sometimes they've got different names now. A steward, where else might you meet them? On a 
of a ship. You still, stewards are still stewards on ships. Uh, someone at uh, 8 o'clock suggested at a race course. Because the stewards, if you hear a steward's inquire, it means something dodgy is going on and they're going to check it out. They're the people who oversee the magnificent spectacle of horse racing and other things. Let me read you a definition. A steward is someone entrusted with another person's wealth or property, charged with the responsibility of managing it to the owner's best interest. This verse, this parable starts off, Jesus told his disciples, so this, unlike the chapter before with the three stories of lostness and God's great love for lost people, this is told to disciples, Christians. He told his disciples there was a rich man whose steward or manager was accused of wasting his possessions. Stewards were often slaves, but there were lots of slaves who weren't stewards. Uh, Joseph was a slave and he was made the steward of Potiphar's house because you are entrusting your stuff, your wealth, often the care of other slaves, to the steward. It's a very powerful position. It's an employee who manages another person's property. That's, that's the important thing. You, you're dealing with money, wealth, fields, land, all sorts of things, but it ain't yours. And that's what a steward is, someone who looks after someone else's stuff. Now, you can see this um, if in this great moment from um, Return of the King, uh, where Gandalf, one of the hobbits, goes and meets one of the bad guys in the story, although he's a bit tragic, isn't he? The, the steward of Gondor, right? And um, he's, the thing I hadn't noticed when I watched the movie was that when you see the steward, you, you might notice, because it just happens occasionally, there's this other throne here. And the whole structure of the building is saying, this man who is the Lord, he's called the Lord uh, by Gandalf. He's the Lord of, but he's only the Lord in as much as he's the steward. He is the most powerful man in the kingdom until the king comes back. And as you know, in this discussion, the, um, the steward of Gondor is not happy that he's heard that the king, uh, the, it's called the return of the king. Because what happens to stewards is they often forget Lord, although they're living well and although they're very powerful and other people have to treat them with respect, they don't own nothing. It all belongs to someone else. There was a rich man who had a manager or a steward who was accused of wasting his possessions. John Wesley, one of those giants of, of um, English and worldwide history, really, who has seriously changed the world, I think, massively for the better. Uh, he was involved in a, a great movement of the Holy Spirit where hundreds of thousands and even millions, and this is when the population of England and uh, America was much, much less than it is now, came to know Christ in absolutely transforming ways. A lot of the movement to get rid of slavery grew out. It was a generation later, the work that God did through Wesley. And he says this, it's very interesting. Uh, no character more exactly agrees with the present state of humans than that we are stewards. Our blessed Lord frequently represents us as such, and there is a, a peculiar rightness about this representation. This title, steward, exactly expresses the situation in the present world, what kind of servants we are to God. And so that's, he's, and I, I agree with him, that's why I'm quoting him, obviously, um, that I think if you want to understand yourself, who you are as a human, and then who you are as a Christian, steward is very helpful. One of Wesley's concern was this. 
They did a lot of preaching amongst the appallingly oppressed and uh, violent societies that worked on the docks and in the mines at that stage. And uh, people became Christians who just... Anyhow, a lot of them became rich or relatively rich because they stopped being drunks. They stopped spending all their money on gambling. They would work and they would bring their money home to the family, etc. And he said the problem was that when they became rich, they often lost the vitality of their relationship with God because money has that power to do that. You heard that in Deuteronomy 8, where just when they're about to go into the land flowing with milk and honey, Moses, as God spoke to him, warns them about the danger that they're coming into because God is about to bless them with wealth, with land, with vines, with all sorts of things, and that the danger is that they will forget him. And Wesley thought the, the most helpful thing was to let Christians know from the moment they met Jesus that they are stewards, that they should earn lots of money, save lots of money, and give lots away, lest the money take hold of their heart and transform them in an unhelpful way. Now, the steward of Gondor is a steward who forgot that all the wealth and the good food that he eats, and there are some grotty scenes out there where he's eating food and he looks revolting. But, um, let's have a look at the Bible verses that talk about your and my relationship with the world that we live in. Because my suggestion is, it's easy enough to know the idea of the steward. I think for me and for people I'm close to, it's quite hard to hang on to it and let it get deep into our, who we are. Yeah, yeah, we know that, do we? One of my favourite quotes from Zig Ziglar is, um, it's a long trip from the head to the heart. And I think that's so often, we know stuff, but we don't know it. Uh, Not in the way the Bible speaks of. So let's have a look at some of these, um, these two ways of thinking. There are basically these two ways. Either you can live life as if God owns everything or as if everything's kind of up for grabs. A little bit like, Uh, what happened in Australia with the Terra Nullius thing, that the idea was that nobody owned the land, so it was just there for whoever could take it. Uh, It was a fiction then, and it's a fiction when it comes to the universe. So here's the question, whether or not you're an owner or a steward. Here's some of the key verses for us um, from Psalm 24. This is the basic foundation. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein because he built it. Here's the basic reality that humans disagree with. This is his world you live in and the fullness of it, right? The the grapes you had yesterday, uh, all of it is his. Why? He made it. He created it from nothing, right? It's his. And not only is it his, but the people who dwell on it, you and I, you are his. Now, what sin is, is a fundamental refusal and an anger at that reality. I don't belong to anybody. I belong to myself. Rubbish. You've been made and you belong to someone else. The heart of human sinfulness is an act of theft, where we steal from God what is obviously his, that is us. So 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7 is a beautiful verse, right? Uh, Who makes you superior to others? What do you have that you did not receive? If you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? See, why are you clever? Or why are you strong? Why have you got certain abilities? God gave it to you. 
God gave you good hand-eye coordination, lots of fast twitch muscles or whatever it is that makes you, you know, a God on the sports field. Or put the, you know, I remember this friend went to visit them just after they had their first baby. It was a very pretty looking little gal. And it was one of the stupidest things I've ever heard. I didn't say this at the time, I'm a very sensitive person. Um, But this person said, aren't we brilliant to have made that baby? Oh, I think the way you designed the womb was particularly clever, right? And those eggs that you just happened to be born with already, you know, lined up, you know, waiting to come out at the appropriate time, good work there too, you know, and keeping them fresh for all these years, amazing, right? This utter stupidity when we take... So if you are very clever and that makes you proud, you're being so silly, it's ridiculous. Are you sure you're that clever? You didn't design your brain in the way it's come out, you know, being so clever. It's a gift from God. And the Bible's very clear. All things are made from God. All of our gifts and abilities, etc., are made. My grandmother, my mother's, my father's mother won an award many, many years ago. She's been dead for ages now uh, for, for work in charity. She's a good woman, generous woman. But she had no empathy or sympathy for people who were poor and in trouble because she grew up literally with a dirt floor uh, out in the country. She grew up seriously poor, but she grew up rich. She was well loved by her mum and her dad. She went to a little school, right, which had just had some wonderful teachers. She had a good work ethic. So though she was poor, she was rich. So inevitably in a country like Australia, she becomes quite wealthy and has no sympathy with people who don't have that sort of emotional sort of stability that she had as a gift. All that we have, we've received. This is what God says, and we know it's true. That's why in Deuteronomy 8, we have this warning about the danger of us forgetting God and just being so clever, where he says, you know, he'll give you all these gifts, and you may say to yourself, it is by my power and the strength of my hand that I've produced all this wealth. But remember the Lord your God. It is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. One of the silliest comments people make sometimes when they think, well, the reason I'm rich is because I've worked hard and the reason people are poor is because they don't. Really? Really? You think millions and millions of people who live in other parts of the world like Africa, you think they don't work as hard as you? Many of the, the women and the men work a billion times harder than we do. Why are we so wealthy and they perhaps not so much? Because of the blessings we have in this country. And it's right to be thankful, to enjoy it. Whereas other people can work, and they do work massively hard, but because of things in the past, in the country, etc., it's just not possible for them. So what this is saying is, remember, it is God who gives us the ability to be. It's great to be wealthy, but the problem when you're wealthy and moderately successful, you can quickly become proud, right? which is the most deadly of sins. And then you've got the beautiful statement in 1 Corinthians 29, haven't you, when King David is raising money for the temple. And they've, the, he and the people of Israel have given unspeakably generously to it. And look at what he says. I can't see it up the back there. He's praying, wealth and honour come from you. You are the ruler of all things. Who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And yet David could have gone through a whole list of very difficult military campaigns he had to go through to get the success and the wealth that he had, often fighting against really bad enemies. But he he understands it all comes from you. 
Everything comes from you. We've given you only what comes from your hand. Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for the building your temple comes from your hand. This is the, this is the awareness of reality. And we are stewards. Right? All human beings are stewards. People who become Christians especially have embraced that reality. We know, as, as it says in 1 Corinthians 6, when you're not your own, you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Right? It's all the way through the Bible. The question for you to think is, and just keep an eye on this over the next week, do you think about your life, even using that word is funny, do you think about the life God has given to you and the opportunities God has opened before you with the wealth that God has entrusted to you? Do you basically think of that as your life with your stuff? which you may generously give some to various charitable groups and some to the church, or do you see yourself as a steward? You're simply overseeing stuff that belongs to someone else. Are you a steward or an owner? Secondly, are you a wasteful steward or a faithful steward? Verse 1, Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose steward or manager was accused of wasting his possessions. This word wasting is the same word used in the chapter before of the prodigal son who, who wasted right, his father's possessions in wild living. So the money is for this, he's just wasting it. If you look at chapter 16, the second half is that terrible story that Jesus tells of the rich man who ends up going to hell. But he's a very bad steward. Look at the verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar. So you've got a really, really rich man. And for this really, really rich man, his Bible verse would be, and it's a, it's a, it's a legitimate Bible verse, that God gave us all good things richly to enjoy. But that's his only verse, I think, right? He just takes and takes and spends and spends. Purple clothing, finest linen, Egyptian linen, etc. Uh, every day was Christmas for him. And at his door was someone he was called on to love. The law of Moses is very clear. If you've got a poor Israelite at your door, you damn well better look after them. God had entrusted to him great wealth and a great opportunity to use it. He didn't. He is a wasteful steward. Now, as you know, he ends up sadly in hell and tries to get a message back to his brothers who are just the same as him. Uh, you can read that for yourself. It's a Sunday. So the question is whether or not you are, a, I mean, you are a steward, like it or not. Whether or not you're a wasteful steward or whether or not you're a faithful steward, do you use the money and the opportunities and the wealth that God has entrusted to you in a way that your owner would be happy with? And are you sure? And do you regularly... So, as it were, consult with him. Lord, you own all things. You bought me with your own blood. What does it mean? What, what do you want me to do with my gifts, my abilities, my opportunities? Um, are you going to be a faithful or a wasteful steward? That's what verses 10 to 13 are on about. But you've been entrusted. Live trustworthy lives with it. Well, let's look at the last thing, which is perhaps the most fun. Will you and I be faithful stewards or shrewd stewards? That's a silly trick question, Ian, because a faithful steward is a shrewd steward. Now, not shrewd in the way that this guy, this guy was, he's a bad man, 
We're getting a good lesson from a bad guy. And Jesus will do that sometimes in his stories. The mistake is if you think that in the stories of Jesus, every point in the story has to point to something in their relationship with God, as if it's an allegory. Allegories have that thing where every point links up. It's, a lot of Jesus' parables just got one point. So Jesus tells a story where if you did that, you'd think that God was an unjust judge in Luke 18. No, no, no. He's not saying God is like the judge and we are like the woman who's hassling him. He's saying be like the woman who's hassling him. It's one point. And the one point here is to be shrewd like the manager. So you heard the story. It's an unforgettable story. He gets called before his boss and says, you've been ripping me off, haven't you? And then it's a story, so he does something which no one would do. That The owner says to him, I'll give you a couple of days to get the accounts ready. Now, if you've been in an office, or this may have been you, uh, where you get sacked, particularly if you're sacked for dishonesty, you don't get sacked on the Monday and told, OK, clear your desk out by Friday. Certainly when the GFC happened, I was working in, in the city of Sydney at the time, um, security people would, as soon as someone was told they were sacked, the security guys would be there, they'd put your stuff in a box and out you go. Because you can't leave people in a position like that because they can use those moments where they hate you and they've got no long-term reason to be loyal to you to, to really advantage themselves. That's what this guy does in this story. He's, he's told, okay, it's going to come to an end, buddy. Get, get the accounts in order. So he gets the people in who owe his boss money. We don't know what he says to them, but he quite clearly sort of, it seems to me he clearly will butter them up and say, look, I'm a nice bloke and the boss is a bit, he's a bit of a jerk and he's sacked me. I like you, so how about if I cut your bills in half? So he's sort of building up credit and friendship with these people. As it says in verse 4, actually there's a, a guy who comes to our church quite often, Kim. He comes to our Friday night Bible study. And Kim was great because he said in verse 3, he went like this, um, my master, what shall I do? My master's taking away my job. And he went like this. Oh, what shall I do? And then for verse 4 he went, ah, I know what I'll do. And I just I remember those two hand actions. Because the reason this guy is shrewd is because he faces the fact that he only has a few more minutes before everything falls apart. He's caught in a crisis. But he's not a goose. Doesn't just put the telly on, right? Have a drink. He says, blimey, I better work on this. What's going on? I, I'm, I'm going to lose my job. Uh, I can't work. You know, I, I'm too proud to beg. How, how am I going to survive? Then he goes, ah, I know what I'll do. And he, he makes, look, I'll read what it says. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job, which he knows is coming soon, people will welcome me into their homes. So he's, he's making sure that the people that he can influence, we'll go, ah, oh, good, ah, oh, you're a friend of ours. I remember you saved us, you know, tens of thousands of dollars with bills we owed to that rich guy. Here's what the boss says. This is the verse that, that people, we struggle with. Verse 8, A. The master, that's the owner, the rich man, commended the dishonest steward, manager. Why? Not because he's been dishonest but because he's been, he's acted shrewdly. The boss can see what's happened, he's heard what's happened, and he, he can, he can, you can admire someone who's being a rat. If you've never been, I've, I've been in a few situations, I've seen people operating, I thought, you cunning dog. I don't like what you're doing, but gosh, you're doing it well. And uh, Andrew Vella was saying, it's a bit like some of those movies, what are those movies, is it 11 or? 
Ocean's Eleven and that, where you're watching criminals, but my goodness, they're clever, which isn't like most criminals, actually, thankfully. But uh, they are very, very clever and adept, etc. So they get away with it. I, I want to say, the, the thing I think of, without going too much into it, I, I have had that sort of thinking about the people who organised the same-sex marriage debate. Because the people who ran that campaign for you know, about a bit less than a decade, it was brilliantly done. I think it's a mistake, right? for all sorts of reasons. That's not an anti-gay statement, it's just it's a question about the nature of marriage. I think it's a mistake. Every culture, every culture we know anything about, the one thing that is stable about marriage is across the sexes. How permanent marriage is, whether or not you have three or four wives or husbands, all that's variable. The one thing that every single culture has about marriage is, but anyhow, you, our culture changes it. But I just, I thought the way that they organised the debate was utterly brilliant. And I, I knew a few guys who ran the campaign in New South Wales, and I, I said, I reckon in years to come, people are going to study how you did this to massively change one of the understanding of one of the great centres of culture in about half a decade, all sorts of silly lines that we all started to say, like, love is love. I remember I was at a diocesan thing a couple of years ago, and I was sitting with two very impressive people who are involved in church education, and we're having a discussion, and they said, oh, well, love is love. I said, you don't really think that. He said, yeah, it's love. It's all love's the same. I said, really? So what about the case that was happening in America then, the man who wants to marry his 16-year-old daughter? Is that okay? Oh, no, that's creepy. I said, well, love is love. But it's such a good saying. There's all sorts of affection and sexual attraction that we go, no, you're you're kidding me, aren't you? But we all go, but love is love, right? Brilliant. Who can speak against love? So I think it was... I look at that kind of thing, brilliant. You actually, very, I think people will study it. I think that's what this guy's saying. He's not pleased that he's lost money, more money, but he's saying, my God, you did that well. You're clever, you're shrewd. Why is he shrewd? Because he realised he has a brief moment when he still has authority and power and can act in a way that might secure his future. That's what he says in verse 4. I wonder if we can get to where verse 9 and verse 4 are together. There we go. Um, the man is commended for being shrewd. There's a little monk who worked out the numbering. Like when, when um, Luke wrote the gospel, he didn't write chapter 16, verse 1. He just wrote it. And a, a little Christian guy, some hundreds of years later, put that broken into verses, which is very, very helpful, isn't it? But every now and then, he, he makes a mistake. This is a mistake. Because verse 8 should be two verses. Verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager because he'd acted shrewdly. New paragraph, new verse. Here's, here's now Jesus just talking to the disciples. Up till verse 8, verse A, he's sort of telling the story. 8B, as it were, here's Jesus. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. So he's contrasting his people, the children of light, with the vast people of the world. He says the people of the world are often cleverer in going for what really matters to them than are Christian people. Then verse 9 is the key. I tell you the truth. Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, frankly, at our Bible study, people, we read that verse and people went, what? What do you mean use worldly wealth or filthy lucre, whatever the phrase that has come from that? 
To gain friends? Is that like buying friends? Slipping people 10 bucks? Come on, be my best mate? Right, that looks a bit creepy. Um, but what he's saying here, what he's saying here is wonderful. This is what it means to be a shrewd and faithful steward. See, because it's like verse 4. In verse 4, he says, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, see, something's coming to an end. And so what Jesus says is, use your worldly wealth, like the steward did, to gain friends so that when it's gone, so that, that line there, and that, see, there's, there's a situation that's coming to an end. Eventually, your money's going to come to nothing. Two American banks collapsed this week, but let's not get nervous. It's all cool. But, you know, eventually we leave it behind. Nobody takes it with them. So that when it's gone, and then we've got this eternal dwellings, their houses. So he's talking about use your, use your money like the steward used his opportunity to make friends to do with where you might live when the present game's over. What does that mean? Uh, let me tell you a story that I think that for me is the most helpful. How you can use money now in the brief moment you have between now and death, and we'll be there in a split second. Right? Um, use, use this moment in a way that will transform your experience of eternity. Now, he's not saying you buy your ticket, but he is saying you can act in a way here that will actually change your experience, deepen and wonderfy the experience even more. You will be welcomed, not just by God, because you're forgiven for your sins, but by people who you have blessed in this brief moment. Let me tell you, Reg Hanlon, one of the huge blessings of my, I've had lots of blessings in my life, one of the hugest of them all was working with Reg Hanlon for a year. Um, he was leading a church in West Wollongong. I went to work with him as a trainee youth minister. And um, we used to have this joke, I think I've mentioned this before, that when Reg Hanlon preached, the pews begged God for mercy and the stained glass windows repented because he was, he was so... He was such a powerful preacher about the death of Jesus and the need to repent. Pat, I, met, I went to a church where he grew up at Hornsby as a youth minister. I went, and, and he was apparently unbelievably, painfully shy. It was just unpleasant to be with because he just could barely speak. And when I met him, he was this firebrand. God had really changed him. But here's what Reg said to me, because he went to Kenya as a missionary and actually reached tribes in Kenya that had never heard of Jesus before. And boy, were they glad to hear about him. Some of us, you know, thanks to the London School of Economics mainly, have got this idea, oh dear, Christians go out and they keep interfering with other people's culture. Yeah, like they did to English culture, like they did to Roman culture, like they did to Jewish culture. Yes, you know, good things bring change. But these, these guys, they were so thrilled to hear about a God who loved them. They didn't have to sort of appease the local spirits and, and, and do it. And that there was a God who loved them, who died for them, who forgave them. And Reg was there for many years with his wife and children. How come he got there? Because ordinary people in ordinary pews, mostly in Sydney and Wollongong, gave their after-tax money to, the C, to CMS, the church mission, like we do at our church. You give money. And because of that money... Reg and Shirley and a couple of their kids could fly across to Kenya. They got him a little motorbike, a few other bits and pieces so he could go around. So he couldn't have done it on his own. But people use their filthy lucre. They use their unrighteous mammon. They use their money to make friends into eternity. So what Reg said was this. He said, a whole lot of people who've been giving, using their money, right, 
through CMS and other places. When they die and are welcomed into the streets of glory, it won't just be Christ that will welcome them. But he said there'll be all these people from Kenya, beautiful smiles, are saying, thank you, brother, thank you, sister, that you used your money so that we could become friends with God. If you had not given your money, Reg could not have come. If Reg had not come, we would not have heard the gospel. So that's what I want to suggest to you at saying. Use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's all gone, when the game's all over, which it will be in a split second, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. That's what it is to be shrewd. It's like, this, like that manager who realised he had a split second before he's unemployed and he saw he's pretty much unemployable. Who's going to employ this guy after he's just been sacked for ripping off person A? But he's getting looked after. And what Jesus is saying is, I want my stewards to be shrewd. To be faithful to Jesus means to use the money he has entrusted to you. It's not yours. It's entrusted to you in order to make friends into eternity. So that, that seems to be what he's saying. Any questions? I should have let you know I was going to do that, sorry, because I know some people go, oh, well, I didn't know that was happening. Um, is there anything about that that's not clear? Yes? The they is the friends. It's people that you've used your money that has been such a blessing to them that they'll say, I, I take it, one of the many things that will be fun about heaven is that we will know all sorts of things that we don't know. They will know, ah, this is, you know, these are the people who made it possible for Reg to come. So it, it's calling us to use our money with a view to eternity, right? No, I, I, see, I can't, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I wasn't, Deliberately misspeaking, but it's not ours. This is the deep thing we've got to get used to. It never was yours. You're a steward. Ah, but you say, but I've lived independent. No, you haven't. You've been bludging his oxygen for decades. And the water that is his invention that he sends from the clouds and the rivers, right? We live as bludgers. We receive the blessing of his economy. And it's great. That's what I take it he's saying. And that's what it means to be a faithful steward, is to be a shrewd steward. But let's admit it, brothers and sisters, it's scary. Because we've all got plans and hopes. We've all got friends that are wealthier than us. We've all got friends who've got houses that are nicer than us. Good friends of Ali and I have just, a few things have changed, particularly in the husband's working, and he's now making a fortune. And we've been to their house lots of times. They're a really lovely couple. So, so what are they doing with all this extra money? Another beautiful trip overseas, lovely pictures on Facebook. Nothing, there's nothing sinful about that, but it's just another one. And apparently they've done some fantastic reworkings of the house. Everyone is saying how wonderful it is. It was wonderful last time I was there. But this is what we do, brothers and sisters. That's what you do. If you suddenly get a windfall and an unexpected inheritance, you take a perfectly fine house and you make it 
magnificent. And it costs 40% more than you thought it was going to cost. And your marriage only just survived as it does if you sort of do renovations while you're living in it. And there's nothing wrong with any of the particular things, but it's just the assumption that you and I have. That is what you do with your money. Right? Arguably, it's theft. It was never your money. It was entrusted to you. And it's entrusted to you at a height where you get to work with God in the only thing that matters eternally. So it's not that you're being turned into some slave. You're being elevated to a position where you're working with him. And you get the joy of investing the money that God has worked through you or through your family or whatever into things that matter. You know we're doing a building. Yes, this is related to this, but I don't care if you don't give a cent to the buildings. It is between you and God. But it's important that we see ourselves as who we are. We are stewards, not owners. If you see yourself as an owner, when you find yourself speaking as I've done in this sermon about it being mine, we, we, we just need to unlearn that nonsense. Your culture will teach it to you and your sinfulness will agree with it. We need to pray for our hearts and minds that they will be deeply, deeply renewed. They talk in the scientific world, although it's flowed out from, uh, from that, of paradigm shifts, where there are ways of seeing things and suddenly enough evidence comes that suddenly there's all the blocks move around and bang. And the, the classic one is the, what they call the Copernican Revolution. When Copernicus, they'd been trying, because of Greek, it was all to do with the Greeks, thanks, who, who do nice stuff, but their science was awful. And the, the Europe had adopted Aristotle's take of science. So they had this Aristotelian view of science, which meant that the world was in the centre. It's not biblical, but it's certainly the centre of Greek thinking. And there was all this data that didn't work, so that you had all the planets doing loop-the-loops and all sorts of weird things to try and make them work. And all of it had to be circles, because circles are the perfect shape, even though they're not in real, elliptical, all this stuff. Copernicus finally works out, oh, if we put the sun in the middle... All, so many of the problems disappear. Right? But then he hadn't actually worked out that, that the sun isn't in, in the middle either, actually. It's, it's, we don't even know where the middle is. Right? But that sort of thing where you suddenly go, oh, my goodness, the whole thing is so different. It sometimes gets called a paradigm shift. Becoming a Christian, realising that you're a steward, is a paradigm shift. And I, I struggle with it. I struggle even talking about it. So, you know, I know, for example, the little house Alice and I bought down at Ninara, right? It's not ours. I'll invite you. You can go and stay at our place. We like people staying at our place, right? I'll call it ours, and that's okay, but it's not ours, right? If God was to give us any indication today that we should sell it and put whatever, the $2 of it that we own, pay the bank back the rest, um, that's fine, because it's not ours, the fact that we've got it is indication of how filthy rich we are, you know. Not filthy rich compared to all my brothers and sisters and all the friends I grew up with at school. They're all filthy richer, right? Just depends who you compare yourself with. But for us to learn in our hearts, it ain't mine. So when it comes to this building thing we're doing, the question for us, if we're Christians, and if you're just looking at Christianity from the outside, just ignore this. But if we're Christians, is to say to God, what of the resources that you've entrusted to me, should I entrust, should I pass on into that? Right? 
So it would not surprise me in the least if St Matt's people all think and live as stewards, if one or two people were to give a million dollars. Because frankly, it's not a question of looking at your bank balance. You know that. If you want to not give generously, just look at your bank balance. You've got to get all the other stuff, the house, the superannuation, right, the gold bars you've got hidden under your bed or whatever else, you know, all these other investments. To get all that stuff together and say, right, what of all this stuff that God owns and has entrusted to me should I be passing on to that? Right? See, people did it with this stuff. People who entrusted what was for them large sums of money and large amounts of time and service are dead and buried. And their work is still bearing fruit. People are getting saved in this building. Kids are, young people are, adults are. Because they've invested the money into, it's like building an aircraft carrier, right? Costs a lot of money, but it really enhances certain things. So for us to think about this as a steward and to work out what good. So a number of people will undoubtedly give hundreds of thousands of dollars. Because some of us have got a couple of houses. And if you own a house and you've owned it for a couple of years, you've suddenly got a massive asset. You know, a house that was worth $200,000 in Waniassa is now worth nearly a million. Why do you think God gave you that? Entrusted that to you? He may well have entrusted, so you can give it to CMS so they can send people wherever. I'm not, I'm not just banging the, the drum for St. Matt's. But, it, but some of us have got through inheritances and shrewd business decisions and things like that, quite a portfolio of houses. They don't belong to your children. Your children will think they do, and your children will probably have their eye on it. But we need to realise you are a Christian steward first before you are the generous parent who should die soon so they can get the deposit they need for the house. Right? Now, brothers and sisters, I'm not saying you shouldn't look after your children or help your children. Mark, the man I mentioned last week who's, who was you know, getting paid up here, living here, unlike all his friends, right? Because this is what we do, isn't it? You suddenly get a huge pay rise. You suddenly get a big windfall. Ooh, I might be able to sell the house and move to somewhere nicer, you know? 26 McBride Crescent near the Powers, you know. But um, we just, when I've seen friends of mine receive inheritances, what do they do with it? Make the house bigger. Have another trip to Europe, this time on frog, right? Just to vary it. Now, none of these things are individual, but it's just the way that we think exactly like our culture instead of exactly like Jesus wants us to. That's where joy's found, being the responsible, faithful steward who is shrewd. I need to finish. Let me just finish with one story. I, I do get in trouble sometimes for being a bit cheeky about bishops. <clears throat> and I, I normally show enormous restraint to only be a little bit cheeky. But I want to tell you a story about a good bishop, although he did become bishop and then he went back to parish work. So that's probably good. Stuart Robinson, who was the bishop here a couple of years ago. I used to be involved with Stuart when he planted the church at Quakers Hill, which is a bit like some of the new suburbs outside of Canberra where um, you know, farmlands and other things are being turned into houses. Only they were bigger blocks with huge houses, so people who bought at Quakers Hill had massive um, mortgages. Anyhow, they grew a church and it grew quite excitingly and in the end they, they bought some land and they put up a building. And Stuart 
is a good motivator of people and, and people had given quite generously. But they got to the point where he and Jane had given all that they could. All the keen Christians had given very generously and very sacrificially. They'd been good stewards. But they had a building, but they had no money for chairs. Now, that's okay. In many countries, they don't need chairs. They sit on the floor or the ground. But in Australia, no chairs, no one comes. And they worked and they, they, they did all sorts of things to try. They just couldn't get it. And um, Stuart had a Harley Davidson soft tail. I've forgotten any more details than that. Sounded great, looked terrific. He used it for transport. He used it also for ministry among some of the bikey groups out there. It was a genuine ministry tool. But it was also a lot of fun. It was also a mountain of money sitting there wrapped up in an engine. And I came back one time to speak for Stuart and um, I noticed he turned up in a nasty little Japanese motor car. Uh, I lost enormous respect for him. Uh, and, and I said, mate, well, did Jane finally you know, lean on you too much? I said, no, no, no. He said, I just thought it was time to sell it. Anyway, I heard later on through some of his friends, he sold it and turned it into plastic chairs. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm not suggesting if you've got a Harley, you should be selling it or anything like that. But I'm saying, but see, what has Stuart done? He's simply been a Christian. There's a really obvious need in front of him. He's got this beautiful bit of machinery. He likes it. But he realised he can turn that into plastic chairs. I can hardly think of a worse thing to do than to turn a Harley Davidson into plastic chairs. But I've, well, he's dead now. I've met people who've been saved, who've met Jesus on those plastic chairs that they wouldn't have had if Stuart hadn't been a good steward and turned his Harley into plastic chairs. It almost hurts saying it. But that's what stewards do. It's not my job to judge your stewardship or you to judge mine, but God will. He'll be expecting all of us to think, okay, we've got this task that we're on about. We're blessed because others have done it. And it's up to us now to work out what to do. We need to make sure we're not like the steward of Gondor, who you know, just was unwilling to face. He has a king who shed his blood and died for him. So Ali and I are doing it. I, at first I thought, we don't need to give any money to this. Um, we gave a little bit in the first, you know, the first little things that were, uh, the people have given. I thought that'll probably do. Then I realised this week, hang on, I've got to go back to my master and say, Master, I still have lots of money. I can still, you know, make a difference. Do you want me to? That's a discussion I've got to have with him. It's best not to have those discussions just with Jesus because you can easily gang up against Jesus. And he says, no, my son, take all the money you want. Right? Um, we do need each other's help. All right, enough for now. Um, Let's seek to be honest, faithful, shrewd stewards. Father in heaven, your ways are not our ways. They're better. And we often hurt ourselves by clinging to petty things rather than rejoicing in being generous as you are. Help each one of us here, Lord, uh, to know what it means for us to live as faithful and shrewd stewards. Uh, making use of all the resources that we have for the glory of your Son and for the good of others. Amen.